In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the legend of the vampire, from the ancient Greeks to Bram Stoker and beyond. You know, a lot's been made of the connections between Stoker's Dracula and Vlad the Impaler. A lot of hypothesis theories out there about, oh, well, Stoker knew this and knew that and was influenced by this. From my understanding, and I've, I've looked at some of the work of Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who looked at this quite extensively, what can be proven is that Stoker actually knew very little about Vlad the Impaler. Hey, check out the huge selection of Strange Planet merchandise in my online shop. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on Shop in the menu, or find the link in the episode notes for this podcast. At my Strange Planet shop, you'll find unique men's, women's, unisex t-shirts and athletic shirts, leggings, tote bags, mugs, neck gaiters, and stickers and more. All emblazoned with amazing artwork designed exclusively for my Strange Planet shop by artist-illustrator Rick Forgus. If you're a fan of Strange Planet, why not show it off? Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on shop or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click on the link. It's a strange planet. Dress for it. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Vampire. The word immediately conjures up blood-stained fangs and aversion to sunlight, bats, garlic, and wooden stakes. These undead immortals have haunted our favorite books, television shows, and movies for decades. In his book, Lore of the Vampire, author A.P. Sylvia delves into past traditions around the world and how these traditions have affected our pop culture modern-day vampire. He explores belief systems as well as origins of various notions we all seem to have about vampires and unearths the bloody dirt about this mystical creature. We're about to discover the differences and similarities between the realm of folklore and what modern media has taught us. Did villagers really use wooden stakes, garlic, and mirrors? What about vampires turning into bats or hypnotizing victims? Did they really cause disease, turn into dogs, and sleep in coffins? Topics. So if you're ready, let's hunt some vampires. A.P. Sylvia has long had an int... A.P. Sylvia has long had an interest in supernatural beliefs and their origins. Beyond just immersing himself in the essential texts of vampire folklore, he's traveled to a number of vampire-related locations. He runs the website locationsoflore.com. 
and is a fan of classic monster movies. Hey, AP, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you so much for having me. So my introduction to vampires happened at a drive-in theater back in 1967. My parents went to see Divorce American Style. They uh, they couldn't afford a babysitter. There were five of us, so we were just supposed to fall asleep in the back of the uh, the uh, the station wagon. Uh, but before the movie started, there was a trailer for Queen of Blood, the Queen of Blood with uh, Basil Rathbone and and Dennis Hopper, and there was a Hungarian actress, I can't remember her name, uh, who, who played this vampire in outer space. And that impacted me for the next 20, 30 years. My dreams and nightmares were constantly populated with vampires. What was your introduction to the vampire? Uh, well, you know, ever since uh, ever since I was uh, a child, I've I've enjoyed you know kind of the spooky things, scary shows and books and stuff like that. Um, so it's it's hard for me to pinpoint maybe the the very first time I saw like a, a fictional vampire on television or or something like that. I've just always been I've always just been a fan of of those kinds of things. Um, so it's sort of always, always been with me and I've, uh, liked, you know, books and, and things like that. Uh, you know, even when I was a kid, I liked uh, scary stories to tell in the dark, that book series really liked that. And, uh, even, uh, I ran across, uh, not long ago, um, a book that, uh, my, my mother had bought me at like a children's museum. It was a book about ghosts and these stories about ghosts from different parts of the world and things like that. And so I've, I've always been sort of interested in that kind of thing. So, uh, vampires of lore, traits and modern misconceptions. Tell me a little bit about the book. The book is essentially kind of a trait-by-trait analysis of our modern notions about vampires that, you know, are informed from, like, film and books and things like that. And um, basically, it goes through all of these things we we sort of think we know about vampires and then looks towards uh, the actual folkloric beliefs to um, to see if those traits are actually present or, if they're not, sort of when were they introduced. And I sort of got I got on this kind of topic uh, a few years ago, when um, my girlfriend and I, uh, now my wife, uh, we were in New York City in Times Square, and uh, we uh, were walking past a Ripley's Believe It or Not museum. Uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been to one of those, but they're really they're really great. There's a number of them around, um, and they're full of different sort of oddities and strange objects and stuff. And uh, as we were going through it, one of the one of the rooms that kind of had this sort of uh, kind of uh, spooky atmosphere to it uh, had this this fascinating fascinating object. It was this sort of antique box filled with. Uh, vials and like a stake and a cross and uh, a mold for silver bullets and stuff like that. And um, the display said that it was uh, an antique vampire killing kit from the 1800s. And supposedly people would like buy these kits if they were going to Eastern Europe or something like that. Um, so that sort of stuck with me. The, the, just just the, the, the imagery of it was fantastic. And so after I, I got home from that trip, I, I started thinking about it and I was like, oh, I want to learn more about this vampire killing kit. So I started, you know, just, uh, you know, took to the Internet doing some searches and I actually found out there was a little bit of controversy surrounding them. Um, Ripley's maintains that they are authentic pieces, while um, some other folks argue that they are actually um, uh, they were assembled in like the 20th century using antique parts. Um, and one of the arguments for it was, well, you know, some of, some of the stuff in these kits kind of it represents um, sort of a pop culture notion of vampires rather than, you know, the folklore of vampires or something like that. And that really sort of got me on this track of, well, what what did people believe about vampires, um, you know, in, you know, in time times gone by? Um, because, you know, we often sort of think, well, you know, the movies that we watch sort of reflect what the, what the beliefs were of the past, but that's not actually the case. And I knew that to a certain extent, just based on some documentaries and things like that I had watched, but I really wanted to know sort of trait by trait, what, what was authentic to the folklore? And I couldn't really find a complete list like that. So I started doing research and I wound up writing a book. How much? Well, let me first uh, res- uh, say something about the uh, those vampire hunting kits. I saw one um, 
in the office of the uh, Center for Skeptical Inquiry down in, I think it's, well, it's near Buffalo, New York, mm -hmm. uh, Joe Nickel, who is one of the contributing editors, has one of those. And it is, it's absolutely fascinating. I would love to own one, one of those. <laughs> um, now, in terms of the, 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 the origin of the, uh, the legend of the vampire, uh, I mean, obviously it, it goes much further back than the, the late 19th century and Bram Stoker. What did you find? How far back does it go? To the ancient Greeks? Does it go back that far? Well, it's, it's interesting. And it, and it sort of gets into how you want to define what a vampire is. Um, but, you know, I... If you start going going far back, you start to see sort of sort of vampiric elements and things. Um, one one example, say, is from um, the Odyssey, right? Um, the, sort of the uh, in, that ancient Greek work um, where you know Odysseus is on this quest to to go home. There's a scene in the Odyssey where he he goes to sort of the um, the entrance to Hades, and they dig this trench and they fill it with blood, and these ghosts appear, and the ghosts that he lets drink the blood are able to speak to him. So like there, there's that now those aren't vampires and I would not classify that as, uh, as a vampire. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of moving in a certain direction, right? Um, oftentimes people, uh, people will assert, uh, that like Lilith was the first vampire, right? Lilith, uh, in, uh, Hebrew folklore was the, the first wife of Adam who, uh, sort of refused to be sort of subservient to him and, uh, left the garden and sort of turns into this, this demon that, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, kills children and drinks blood and stuff like that. Um, so for me, though, so the, and there's also there's other sort of related monsters that drink blood in ancient times, the Impusa and stuff like that. But for me, a lot of those a lot of those creatures that often come up when you start researching vampires aren't necessarily spot on for what a vampire is. So when I started writing the book, I, I had to I had to sort of uh, define like what what do I want to consider uh is a vampire because I feel like sometimes if your definition is too broad, you start to kind of muddy the water in terms of what maybe the psychological roots of uh, sort of vampire hysteria are. So for me, I, I came up with three criteria for what a vampire is. I said, first, it has to be the corpse of a once living person, right? So it's not uh, it's not like a demon or a monster or something that was never human to begin with. Vampires used to be regular people. Um, secondly, the corpse is uh, harming the living in some way. So I actually broaden it out a little bit from from just blood drinking. And to me, any sort of any sort of harm or fear that the vampire is inducing, I think, is relevant to the to to this analysis. Um, and then lastly, in order to um, destroy the vampire, action has to be taken against the corpse itself. So that that kind of ties into this notion that vampires aren't sort of these ethereal creatures like ghosts or something like that. They are there's a physicality to vampires that's important, um, and uh, you know is is significant I think to kind of how people arrive at the at these beliefs. Um, so I think the, I think the roots of vampires go back quite a ways. Uh, one of the oldest accounts that I ran across was from um, the 12th century, um, which was uh, written by uh, an English chronicler, William of Newburgh, and it actually is an account of this sort of vampire uh, undead incident that happened uh, in the UK. Uh, and I, I particularly I particularly like that story because it sort of it pulls the vampire out of like you know the you know 1700s 1800s sort of Romania and 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 pulls it much further back and it pulls into a different area and why did uh, Bram Stoker decide to write about vampires in in the Victorian era what was was there some impetus some news peg um, you know why did he sort of re revitalize the the legend of the vampire at that time well, you know, I think Bram Stoker, you know, he 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 certainly wasn't, you know, in a bubble, so to speak, with the, with this vampire thing. He actually is sort of the culmination of a number of different 19th century vampire works that came out before him, and I think he was influenced by a number of those uh, by a number of those things, and 
Um, as well as, you know, he did he did various research uh, in libraries about, you know, Transylvania, Romania um, and, you know, vamp, you know, some vampire accounts and stuff like that. But I think I think he was influenced by not only the folklore, but certainly the literature that preceded him. And I think he then sort of arrived and maybe sort of perfected this um, Victorian notion of what a vampire uh, is, uh, which was quite different than the folkloric vampires that came before. And what uh, characteristics of, let's say, the modern day, the modern era vampire, uh, relies heavily on on Bram Stoker, and where did he deviate from the the folkloric vampire of old? Sure. Well, he, I mean, he he deviated in a number of ways. I think he introduced some things, he popularized some things. Um, but again, he was being influenced by the literature that came before him. I will say, um, one of the things probably that we sort of think about nowadays, right, with the vampire being kind of suave or sophisticated or moving in high society, that kind of thing, right? You think of, um, you know, you think of uh, Dracula, maybe like, you know, like in like a Bela Lugosi, you know, with the, with the cape and he's, he's, you know, this, this, this aristocratic count and stuff like that, that all was sort of a, a product of, um, 19th century literature, um, that, you know, there was, uh, stories before him, probably the, what sort of started that trend was, um, was a novella from, I want to say the 1820s called, uh, the vampire, uh, written by, uh, a guy named Polidori. And he was sort of, uh, he was sort of the first to kind of take this vampire and mate and turn it into someone who was um, moving around in, in in society and stuff like that. Before that, the vampire was very much feared. You know, that wasn't necessarily like the vampire wasn't going to sort of show up at a party and um, flirt with people and stuff like that. The vampire was 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 visiting people in the night, was causing death and disease. Um, was uh, a, a monster, a monster to a monster to be feared. Right, just a reanimated corpse. Right, right, very much so. So in in the work in in this novella, the vampire, um, the main the 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 vampire in it is named Lord Ruthven, and he's got this kind of alluring quality, but he's also very destructive to the people around him and stuff like that. Um, and it's an interesting it. The story behind it is sort of interesting. Polidori was uh, the um, personal physician to Lord Byron. The famous poet, uh, yes, and uh, the two men did not get along well at all. Um, so it's the it's been hypothesized that Polidori based Lord Ruthven on Lord Byron. Um, Interesting. And there were yeah, and then there were a number of stories afterwards. Varney the Vampire, which was a long, which was in the 1840s, that was a long running penny dreadful about a vampire named Sir Francis Varney. Um, and so it kind of the the vampire sort of shifted, and now suddenly you have you know lords and knights and stuff like that. And then with Bram Stoker account being um, uh, being vampires, and I think that probably resonated with the Victorian readers at the time because that was would have been perceived as more of a threat to them. It's like this monster is now infiltrate you know is infiltrating um, our lives and is sort of you know a danger to people and corrupt corrupting people and stuff like that um, as opposed to when you go back further with folklore it was much more you know villages where there's um, a disease or some kind of malady um, or tragedy that's taking place and people are looking for some kind of explanation a root cause for it right right um, is there a, a connection specifically to something like tuberculosis absolutely yeah um, so there were um, you know, when you look at some of these vampire accounts, some some are, you know, you when you think of sort of vampire stories, right, you have some kind of like, you know, sort of like legends and stuff like that, that, you know, made mists of time. But other other, you know, the other vampire accounts, they were written about in newspapers and, you know, in the contemporary period that it was happening. Um, so tuberculosis, the biggest connection there are with these sort of vampire accounts uh, from uh, New England, where um Essentially, what this was this happened uh, a number of cases. People 
uh, would contract con tuberculosis was then known as consumption. And consumption is sort of a wasting disease um, where you where you sort of have this sort of slow decline. Uh, it's uh, you know a respiratory infection, so you're 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 coughing up blood and you're looking very pale and stuff like that. And it would go from kind of family member to family member. So sometimes these families would lose like multiple people over the course of some time, some years, to tuberculosis, then known as consumption. Um, and the doctors of those time periods, they didn't really have, they didn't have any kind of um, cure. They didn't have a cure for this. There, there was, you know, they didn't have any sort of solutions for the people. There was, they would say like, oh, go, go out, um, you know, go to Colorado where it's dry, the dry air will help you and stuff like that. But, you know, they, there, there was, there was, there was, um, there was nothing really to be done. Um, so people would sort of just watch as family members would kind of waste away. And so there was a belief that um, the the root cause of the consumption was, in fact, the dead. And so the dead would be blamed for this and actions would be taken against the corpse in order to save the living probably one of the the most famous uh incident incident of this uh was the mercy brown case which happened in uh it was the 1890s i believe so you know long time ago but you know not that long ago you know in, in the grand scheme of time um it happened in uh exeter rhode island where um mercy brown she was 19 years old um she had lost uh her mother and her older sister to consumption she then passed away from consumption. And so that left her father, George, and her brother, Edwin. Now, Edwin is ill with consumption. He goes to Colorado for some time to try to, you know, hopefully beat the disease, but it doesn't, doesn't work. He comes back. So he's slow, you know, he's slowly declining. And the, the people of the town kind of go to the father, George, and they're like, you know, there could be, you know, it could be that the dead are the root cause of this. You know, it, you know, this, this is, this isn't, you know, this isn't happening from nothing. There's a, there's a reason for this. Obviously these people didn't have the benefit of the knowledge we do today, right? With germ theory and stuff like that. Um, so they were trying, they were trying to make sense of, of the world around them. So what was done was, um, the cor the corpses of the mother, the older sister and mercy were all exhumed and they were examined. Um, the corpse of the mother and the older sister, uh, had decomposed to a point that they were sort of beyond suspicion. Um, Mercy's body, however, uh, looked, uh, looked to them unnaturally preserved. Now she had died in the winter and this was, you know, some, you know, few months later or something like that. But to them, she looked, she looked too much alive. And so they um, removed her heart and her liver to check it for blood. And they felt that if, if blood was present in those organs, that was a sign that Mercy was stealing the life of her brother Edwin. Um, now, the villagers looked at these organs. There was, uh, there was sort of, uh, there was um, dried blood in it. Um, but to them, that was enough. The doctor felt like that was what they were seeing was kind of normal. The doctor was present at the time. He felt that that was, that was normal and to be expected. Um, but to, to the villagers, that was, that was the, all the proof they needed. So they wound up taking the heart and I believe the liver and they burned the organs on, uh, a rock in the cemetery, um, until they were ashes. They took the ashes and they mixed it in, in with water and they actually gave that to Edwin to drink as a cure for his consumption. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it didn't work and he passed away a short time later. But, you know, that's probably one of the most famous uh, accounts of, you know, vampires being linked to consumption um at the time the newspapers caught wind of it and so there was a number of newspaper articles um the people who were involved with it um you know the people of, of the town i don't believe they ever used the term vampire but the newspaper the newspapers did hmm. um and so there so and that was not necessarily an isolated thing there were a number of other um you know incidents that kind of follow that same sort of pattern and um I'm sure people sort of hearing the the 
the story of someone drinking the, the ashes, it's, you know, quite, quite shocking. Um, but not a singular incident. I actually found accounts uh, from Romania where the same thing was done, where um, the heart was burned and, and um, the ashes were mixed with water for, you know, as, as, a, as a cure. So that wasn't sort of uh, that wasn't sort of unique to this scenario. And I find it interesting that these kinds of beliefs can sort of travel, you know, from one continent to another. More of my conversation with A.P. Sylvia when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. What can I say about ESS-60 I haven't already said? It's a miracle in a bottle. ESS-60 is pure carbon-60. And carbon-60 is a miracle molecule that earned its discoverers a Nobel Prize in chemistry. I've been taking a tablespoon of ESS-60 for my friends at C60 Evo every morning for nearly a year. What a difference it's made in my life. It delivers better health, mental clarity, and immune support. I'm pain-free, energized, and I'm sleeping better than I have in decades. ESS-60 from C60 Evo is a powerful antioxidant. 107 72 times more powerful than vitamin C. It's a known antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory remedy that really works. And now you can experience C60 Evo's new Advanced Facial Serum, the groundbreaking new anti-aging formula that incorporates ESS-60, plus 21 organic, natural, and vegan ingredients. This luxuriant formulation is specifically blended to soften and heal your skin. Put it on at night, enjoy the subtle rosemary essence and awaken to noticeably softer skin. To get your ESS-60 and C60's new Advanced Facial Serum, go to episode notes for this podcast and click on the C60 Evo link. And don't forget to use the code RS1SPEC, RS1SPEC for 5% off. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Richard has tiny talking insects living in his sock drawer. We have bags and we are living in Richard's sock drawer. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. A.P. Sylvia, the author of Vampires of Lore, Traits and Modern Misconceptions, is here. I want to go back to, to Stoker for a moment because uh, I'm wondering about the connection between his vampire, uh, his Count Dracula, and Vlad the Impaler, Vlad the Third from, um, he was what, the Prince of, was it Wallachia or Wallachia? Wallachia, in Ro- yeah. Wallachia yeah. in Romania. Yeah. Um, how heavily did he borrow from, from Vlad? Um, you know, a lot's been made of the connections between um, Stoker's Dracula and Vlad the Impaler. A lot, a lot of you know, um, hypothesis, you know, theories out there about oh, well, Stoker knew this and knew that, was influenced by this. Um, from my understanding, and I've I've looked at some of the work of Dr. Elizabeth Miller, who who looked at this quite extensively. Um, Stoker, what can be proven is that Stoker actually knew very little about Vlad the Impaler. Um, he, uh, in, uh, we know that in a lot, li- in one particular library, he was reading an account. It was, uh, I think it was, it was the history of, uh, Wallachia and Moldavia. And there's this line about this, uh, this prince who, you know, fought the Turks and his name was Dracula, uh, and Dracula means devil. And, um, you know, so this very sort of kind of brief little segment about, you know, this this prince that had been fighting and, and, and won some victories and stuff like that. And that's kind of that's that's really sort of the only thing we, we know for sure that Stoker knew. And if you read Dracula, it's pretty clear he read that little bit because at one point Van Helsing is talking about who Dracula was in the past and kind of says all that. And you don't really get much else about Dracula in in um, Stoker's novel. So it, you kind of feel like Stoker, if he if he had all this other sort of fun information about Vlad the Impaler, he probably would have would have thrown it in there, and and he didn't. Um, so he he knew of him to a certain extent. I I don't I believe he didn't even know his name was Vlad. He knew Dracula, um, and um, he took that name to uh as for his for his character i think before that i think the character was going to be called like count Wampier or something like that um it's a great name uh and sort of he, he i think he liked the sound of it he liked that it, it it meant 
uh, it could mean devil. And um, but from there on, sort of this connection has has sort of always been there. Uh, well, I should say this connection now will sort of always be there um, because it's sort of always the, the, a lot's made of it. So, yes, Count Dracula was, you know, some of, you know, some some of, you know, uh, Vlad, you know, Vlad's history was used to to sort of inspire Count Dracula, but very little. Um, not as far as we know, not not you know, not a lot. It was a very very limited connection there. And Vlad the you know Vlad the Impaler, um, as he's often known, uh, in his life he wasn't believed to be a vampire or anything like that. He was um, a very brutal and ruthless ruler who uh, killed and impaled, you know many many people thousands of people um but uh he was not believed to be uh in his time a vampire now you've you've done some traveling uh in in search of some of these locations associated with vampire lore uh i'm assuming you've been to dracula's castle oh, i ha- i haven't been to eastern europe I, ah. would, I would love to go um at some point I, w- I would like to definitely get out there um i visited a number of locations um uh in the northeast united states that were connected to um some some of these vampire accounts i've been to the grave of uh mercy brown i've been to the grave of uh sarah tillinghast another another um sort of vampire incident um i actually went to um a location in uh chicago that um that is connected to a vampire story where um someone uh there was this kind of vampire panic going on in this neighborhood and um this woman's husband disappears for for some days and they think this vamp they think he's a victim of a vampire and these kids go to this local park that used to be a cemetery and do a vampire hunt so that's kind of a that was sort of an interesting story so i i I checked i checked that one out i've uh been over to uh to london to highgate cemetery um which uh is interesting highgate cemetery is interesting because it's sort of it's linked to vampires in a few different ways yes um uh so uh probably first of all some people think that highgate uh uh, was sort of the inspiration to Bram Stoker for the cemetery scene in Dracula, where the uh, they go to destroy the vamp- uh, the vampire of Lucy Westenra. They think the they think the cemetery that that she's in. Some people think that it was inspired by Highgate. That was kind of where Stoker was envisioning that was happening. Uh, Highgate was also used um, for some of the Hammer vampire films. I think I think it was I think it was uh, I think they did some shooting there for um, Taste the Blood of Dracula. I think I think that right, one was shot, right. was shot there. So 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 it's got kind of a Stoker connection. It's got the Hammer vampire connection, and, and in the 1970s there was an actual like vampire panic associated yes, yes. to Highgate Cemetery. Absolutely. Where, yeah, which was kind of a big deal at the time where um, these uh, people were seeing supposedly this like shadowy figure looming around the, the cemetery and people were finding um, animals that had been drained of blood. And there was a lot of, there was, you know, a lot of uh, stuff in the newspapers and stuff like that and people coming forward with stories and things and it kind of culminates this one night and all these people kind of descend on the on Highgate uh, in search of this vampire and it ends up causing a lot of uh, damage and vandalism to, to the cemetery right. replete with pitchforks and and tor- torches. Uh, I actually got to know uh, Bishop uh, Sean Manchester. I was at mm-hmm. his house in the south of England and interviewed him for a, on a TV show. Uh, oh, really? What do you make of that whole escapade? Um, I'm not really. Sh- I'm not really sure. Um, I know there's um, some some competing stories um, uh, about about it, and there's some you know. I think there's some differences of opinion between some some of the players that were involved. Um, I believe uh, I believe he's come out with uh, I, he has a, I think he wrote a book ab- about about his experience with it and all that, which I I, uh, I, I haven't read that book, so I can't really comment on that. Right. Um, For people not uh, not in the know, he uh, Manchester Bishop Manchester, who who actually uh, claims to be a descendant of Lord Byron, to kind of tie it all together. Oh. Uh, if you walk into his house, you see this huge portrait of Byron. Oh, cool. uh, he was a very, he's a lovely man, uh, very, you know, uh, he was very hospitable, but uh, yeah, the story is obviously <laughs> incredible, but he claims to have, have slain the uh, the Highgate vampire. Yes, yes, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's quite the account, and there's, I think there's, there's a lot there, so people can certainly kind of like, 
read about it and dig into it and stuff like that. It's it's certainly quite quite the quite the incident. Um, but the cemetery itself is is beautiful. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's this kind of, you know, this Victorian style with it, with, um, this, you know, some very elaborate, um, sort of architecture there and statues and stuff like that. So it's, it's a really nice, it's a really nice cemetery to visit. Um, uh, there, there's two sides to it. Um, you know, and I think for what, for one side, you need to like get a tour around it and stuff like that. And cause like this group is kind of taken, um, taking on the role of kind of preserving, preserving the cemetery and making sure that it kind of stays up, you know, it's kind of, uh, stays functioning and stuff like that. Cause I think there was a time when it was, its future might've been uncertain. Uh, you mentioned Van Helsing, uh, a character from Bram Stoker, Professor Abraham Velsink, who's this Dutch polymath and he's yeah. got all these letters behind his name, a man of, a man of science. Uh, is it always a great, uh, that character has always fascinated me. Uh, and I love the the Peter Cushing uh, portrayal of Van Helsing. But w- what what does he do you think he represent in in Bram Stoker's novel? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because you have Doctor Seward, who's kind of the you know he's the he's the the you know the the psychiatrist of the group and the doctor and all that, and he can't come to terms. He can't come to terms with what's going on, right? So he has to bring in his his teacher, Van Helsing, who is a man of science, but is also yet open and understanding to um, the unseen world and stuff like that. So he's this he's this interesting bridge between kind of the the scientific and the rational and the supernatural, um, which I, I I think is interesting. and it allows it allows him to sort of bring the other characters into this quest that they might otherwise not have been able to comprehend or understand what was going on in the novel. Um, so I, 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 I think he's a very captivating character and, um, you know, he's been, you know, sort of portrayed in very, you know, by, by various actors in various ways. And it's, it's always fun to see kind of how people take him. What, what do you think of Nosferatu, the 1922 silent movie with, with Max Schreck? I mean, it's a, it's an amazing piece of filmmaking, um, they they uh, they actually screened it here in Toronto a few years ago for Halloween with the in an, with an orchestra full orchestra pit uh, you know to and playing the original score my 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 wife took my boys to see it um, but what are your thoughts on the original Nosferatu? Oh, I think I think it's a it's a uh, a wonderful film. It's um, you know I mean it's obviously it's from it's from the 1920s it's black and white and silent and all that so any sort of modern viewer sort of has to prepare themselves for that but i mean some of the some of the imagery uh, and the the cinematography in it is just it's iconic. You know the these you know the 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 use of shadow and light and and some of those shots of 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 Nosferatu um, are, are are just so power so powerful uh, and so you know just kind of I think they res- they 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 would resonate with people today with viewers today if you were to watch it. I think you know again going and knowing what it is. Um, I, I think it's, it's, it's really such a great film. The story behind, behind it is sort of interesting. Um, so it was, it was made by the production company was Prana film and they wanted to do, you know, this vampire movie. Um, so they wanted to do Dracula, but they didn't have the rights to Dracula. So they decided to just like move forward, but change a bunch of the details to sort of, to avoid, uh, getting sued. So they changed some of the, they changed some of the plot points. They changed some of the character names and stuff like that. So it's, it's count Orlock instead of count Dracula. Right. Um, so they do, so they, they kind of do these, these maneuvers to, uh, to, uh, avoid that. But, um, Bram Stoker's widow does sue and, uh, Prana film loses the case. And the judge rules that all copies of Nosferatu are to be destroyed. Um, but thankfully some copies slip through and survive. And so we still have it today. But if the judge had, had, you know, had their way, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to watch it. We wouldn't know about it. That's remarkable. I I wasn't aware of that story. And it's kind of, I don't know, ironic is the right word, but I mean, I mean, okay, so it's somewhat derivative, but Bram Stoker was being, his work was derivative as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you know, I guess it's, 
I guess it's a question for lawyers as to what you know what ultimately is copyright infringement with one of these these stories. Um, you know, I think I mean obviously right. You know, these the vampire kind of has grown and changed and evolved over time from folklore to fiction and film. And you know, people are, are influenced by the works of the past. Um, so, you know, it's in Nosferatu just, it is such, it is quite the, uh, it is quite the mo- quite the movie for sure. And, uh, another interesting thing about Nosferatu is that, um, that actually is, um, the, that is sort of the source of our belief in vampires being destroyed by sunlight. Hmm. So the, at the end of the, um, at the end of, of the movie, right. I'm ruin I'm ruining this film for everybody, but you know, they had, they had a hundred years to see it. So <laughs> That's um, it. time's up. Time's, time's up. So basically what happens is, uh, in order to destroy the vampire, and this is, this is certainly where it deviates from, from Stoker's novel. Um, uh, they, they have this book that kind of explain, you know, in the, in the, in the movie, there's this book that kind of explains the, you know, the, the vampire and stuff like that. And it says that there's this ritual you can perform to destroy the vampire. And it involves, um, a willing victim, someone willingly giving their, giving over to the vampire, letting the vampire suck their blood for the entire night. And then at the, when the dawn comes, the vampire will be destroyed. And so that's, that's what, um, that's what happens in in the movie the um uh you know the this the one of the female characters uh is fed upon for the night and then as as counterlock is leaving you see the sun come up over the horizon and he does this kind of dramatic turn and then like the next frame they is switched and there's just like smoke where he where he stood so he's destroyed by by the rising by the rising of the sun right um, right and she sacrificed which, herself because she, she knew if she could lure him there and keep him here there long enough that he would be exposed Right. And so it's and it's an interesting question because in and I think it's a little bit open to interpretation as to was it purely the sunlight that destroyed him or was it the entire ritual of someone giving of themselves freely um, to it? And so there's that's kind of a it's an interesting question. Hmm. And if 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 actually the filmmaker's intent had been that it is the ritual itself, then our notion about vampires being destroyed by sunlight uh, is actually somewhat of a misinterpretation of what the film was was going for. Um, but before Nosferatu, vampires weren't believed to be destroyed by sunlight. Um, you know, like you know, Count Dracula could walk around in the daylight if he wanted to. Um, in folklore, there aren't accounts of a vampire like like being destroyed by the sunlight. Um, there are some accounts where the vampire would become, it was believed that a vampire would become lifeless um, at, at the dawn, but that that didn't kill them or anything. They would, they would be, they would be sort of mobile again the next evening. Um, and there are actually other accounts where people believed a vampire might be encountered during the day. Um, so I think it's, it's, it's interesting that sort of this, this notion of sunlight destroying a vampire, which is kind of so ingrained, ingrained in us these days with, with various, um, you know, various media, um, actually isn't, you know, isn't found in folklore. And, um, when you take a step back, it sort of makes sense with a lot of these, with a lot of these accounts, you know, people were, they were putting, they were looking towards the vampire as an explanation for some kind of, you know, disease or, or, or something going on. So you figure if they took the time and trouble to dig up a corpse from the graveyard, um, uh, you know, to sort of, you know, put an end to this, to this, this, you know, tragedy that's occurring in their town, um, to just sort of pop open the lid of the coffin and let the, let the corpse sort of sit in the sunlight for 10 minutes and then call it a day <laughs> probably wasn't going to provide the catharsis that they were, that they were craving. <laughs> craving is a very apt term when we're talking about vampires. So true. Uh, the evolution, devolution of, of vampires. I mean, I remember uh, George Hamilton uh, in Love at First Bite with uh, Susan St. James, which to my knowledge was one of the first sort of comedic interpretations of, of Dracula. And then we've also seen the vampire become um, a sex symbol in, in the Twilight series. Um, uh, we've seen vampires with sort of this degree of moral ambiguity like um, uh, Angel in Buffy the, the Vampire Slayer. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. Um, 
where where are we at right now? Uh, I mean, that uh, in 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 stark contrast to the the vampire as the sort of this this contagion, this you know, as we described mm. earlier, reanimated corpse, just evil. Where are we now with the evolution of the vampire? Yeah, you know, it's 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 interesting. I think. The vampire, and I think I said this earlier, the vampire sort of grows and evolves over time. And I think the vampire changes to sort of adapt to the culture and resonate with the people. And I think that's why we still have vampire, why vampires are still popular today, because they they sort of shift to meet the needs of of the audience. I think, um, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's, you know, the the scapegoat of the 1700s with you know people truly believing in the the vampire as this monster or you know sort of the the 19th century literature where now you have this sort of kind of suave vampire coming coming into existence today i think one of the things that people often um associate with vampires and comes up a lot i think is this notion of immortality Right. The vampire, you know, the the vampire lives forever and they're sort of, you know, they're young forever and that kind of thing. And that has this interesting resonance, I think, with 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 audiences where, you know, you have, you know, people like, you know, in, in some shows like wanting to become a vampire and stuff like that. And I think it makes sense because, you know. We don't need the vampire to, you know, explain why people are getting sick or, or something like that nowadays. But science hasn't conquered death. That is still this sort of frightening reality that we all face. So this notion of uh, a being that can um, can avoid death, um, I think audiences find captivating. But at the same time, there's a price that the vampire has to pay for their immortality, Right. They're now cursed, cursed to live in darkness, cursed to drink blood, to hurt others, right? So I think that also sort of resonates in the notion that, well, maybe nature shouldn't be subverted. The natural course should remain. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, do you have a favorite um, cinematic Count Dracula? Uh, well, I think, I mean... The you know the the classic uh, Universal Dracula with Bela Lugosi. That's that that's uh, you know that's a great film and and Lugosi just does does such an amazing job with the you know with, with the role. Um, one movie I I, I like uh, was the uh, from the 1990s, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Yes, I like I like that one a lot. And obviously people will point out the flaws in the film and all that. Um, and you know yeah I'm not I'm not saying it's a it's a perfect movie, but um, I, I, I liked the portrayal of Count Dracula. I liked the, the, the practical effects. I liked, um, you know, it was Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing. I thought he did a great job. So I think there's a lot to like in that movie and it's a very lush film. And so that's, that's, that's one I, I enjoy. Yeah. No, I thought Gary Oldman was, was, uh, remarkable. Yeah. And you're yeah, right. Really. Uh, Sir Anthony was, uh, that's a, that was a brilliant piece of casting as uh, Van Helsing. Oh I, yeah. So good. You know what? Uh, uh, we were talking about Bram Stoker earlier, and and I was a huge fan of um, uh, the Night Stalker, uh, Carl Kolschak, mm. and um, I think a couple of years ago they did a, a kind of a reboot of the series uh, that didn't go so well. But to me, the, one of the great things about the the series and even the the made for TV movie, with the original one, was about this vampire that was stalking. Las Vegas Showgirls, um, and it—I thought they—they they borrowed that that Victorian style from from Stoker, where he would where the whole story is told in a series of letters and telegrams, and sprinkle in a few first person person narratives. There's a a, a name for that style, epistolary. Uh, yeah, is epistolary it? style. Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yep. um, I thought th I thought that they captured that very well with the Night Stalker. Have you seen Night Stalker? I unfortunately have not seen it. I've I've read some references to it and that kind of thing, but I haven't watched it. Oh, you must. You have to, the 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 made for TV movie. I mentioned the Queen of Blood uh, being kind of a, an early introduction to vampires, uh, but but the made for TV movie, The Night Stalker with this vampire, just absolutely terrified me for for years and years i was alone afraid to be alone in the house and uh it, it had that kind of an impact and now i look back and it's kind of campy but uh mm. anyway um 
listen, it's been a real pleasure uh, speaking with you and uh, meeting you and talking about one of my, my favorite topics. How do we get a copy of Vampires of Lore, Traits, and Modern Misconceptions? Sure. Uh, you can get it on um, Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and various other online booksellers. Uh, if you uh, check with your local bookstore, I'm sure they can uh, get you a copy. Um, you can also uh, find links to some of the other sellers on my website, locationsoflore.com. And you can also, uh, on that website, read about some of the different places I've visited that have you know interesting sort of folkloric histories or legends around them and that kind of thing. Fantastic. And what's, uh, what's next? What are you working on now, AP? Um, I don't know. I've uh, obviously, uh, you know, work on the the posts for locations of lore, and I've got a few different uh, book ideas kind of rattling around in my head. So we'll see what happens. All right. Don't wait too long now. We need more. <laughs> we need more. AP, great talking to you. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to share a few details about an upcoming episode. That time of the week to welcome Colleen Forgas, the manager of our Strange Planet Full Script Dispensary and a nutritional consultant. Hey, Colleen, how are you? Hey, Richard, I'm great. How about you? Terrific, thank you. You know, this time of year, we're taking vitamins and zinc and so many different things. Isn't there something that we can take that has everything all in one? Yes, gosh, if there's something we've learned over the past month, it's the importance of taking care of our immune system. There's a product called Immune Maintenance, which is something you take every day, and it combines vitamin C, vitamin D3, and zinc, as well as a few other botanicals so that we can constantly be supporting our immune system. And you take that daily. It's, we take it daily. And the other thing I like about it, Richard, just to mention, it's a great price. The retail price is $14.50, and all of our subscribers get 10% off of retail prices every time they shop. Fantastic. Plus, they get free delivery on all orders over $50. Yes. Go to strangeplanet.ca and click on the full script dispensary button. Colleen, we'll talk again next week. Thanks. Thanks, Richard. These products have not been evaluated by the FDA and are not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure. If you have a medical concern, please consult your healthcare provider. Coming up next time, ghosts, ghouls, other negative entities, and things that go bump in the night. Paranormal investigations with the host of the popular web series, We Want to Believe. We had a regular patron there that would always come in. He was Aboriginal, and he fancied himself a medicine man. And he had gone up to, to Reese, who's the manager. He'd said to the guy, every time I come in here, I get harassed by this spirit, and it's a demon, and I've actually been able to capture it in this jar. And he sealed it with tape, and he gave it to Reese, and he says, don't, you know, I'm giving it to you to save keep. Don't ever open it. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. <laughs>